word to the wise, we are an explicit podcast tackling choicey adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. Today, we are finishing part two, Rage of Morningstar, the end of the first trilogy. I mean, it's not the full end, but the end of this section of the first trilogy by Pierce Brown. So catch the fuck up. Hey there, this is Cross. And I am PJ. Trying a little bit more uh, more regal sounding with that one. I don't know if it came across. And we are not regal. <laughs> we are <laughs> words not. and whiskey. <laughs> yeah, we, a, yeah, that's better. A podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You can think of us and should think of us as your drunk weekly book club. Uh, as far as weekly goes, this was a, this was a bad week. It was almost a good week, but Ragnar died after seeming like he was going to pull through. I definitely just looked at what I, what I said last week and just flipped it because Ragnar survived last week when we thought he was going to die. So yeah, I mean, three strikes are out, right? Yeah. Like that's, I mean, (laughs) tell that to (laughs) Daryl. Yeah. Fuck. True. Darrow survived like 35 strikes and is somehow still on the team. <laughs> he's he's still the uh the star player somehow. True, true. Yep. So today is our third episode covering Morning Star by Pierce Brown and we're it's here our to fifth see- episode covering Morning Star by Pierce Brown. <laughs> oh it's my god, third- you're right. <laughs> it's our third episode on this part <laughs> part 2. It's our fifth episode covering Morningstar by Pierce Brown, and we're here to discuss the second, the third of three episodes covering part two, Rage, covering chapters 28 through 34. Can you tell that Crossland just copies and pastes last week's show notes and uh, changes whatever he needs to and then forgets about a bunch of shit? Because I totally can tell. Yeah, there there are weeks where it, it goes really well. This week, I actually... You know, I I was doing it ahead of time. I was going to be much more. That was two weeks back. I know, PJ. No, it wasn't. It was last week. <laughs> no, third third episode was two weeks back. Oh, well, I might have copied that document, to be honest, because oh, I just okay. find one and I just copy it. And then I change all the same the same stuff every time. But yeah, okay. I I started <laughs> the notes early this week. I did them like right <laughs> away as opposed to procrastinating them. And I fucked this part up. This is the easy part. Yeah. <laughs> what? Well, so uh, anyway, let's talk about what we're drinking. What are uh, what are you having? I moseyed on into the liquor store and got myself a little bottle of it, several little bottles of a couple different things. Um, one of which was Chambord, which is this mm. raspberry liqueur in sort of the holy hand grenade bottle. I l- yeah. love the look yeah, of those I've, bottles. I've thought that forever. <laughs> yeah, I got I, I made a French Manhattan, which is one of the drinks in the little like neck neck collar booklet thing that comes with the with the bottle so one ounce of chambord two ounces of bourbon and a dash of bitters Um, i used angostura shook it and then uh poured it over ice and then i garnished it with cherry a couple maraschino cherries and a lemon peel sounds really tasty what's it taste like i thought it was going to be sweeter honestly based on the smell of the chambord and uh what i remember chambord tasting like but uh, it's really not super sweet until after you like drink some straight booze and then go straight back to it. Then it's got some sweetness to it. But um, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. It's it's like a sweet 
raspberry bourbon and hmm. it's delicious and sweet sweet relatively i mean like it's not cloyingly sweet but there's there's just a nice background of sort of raspberry sweetness perfectly intermingled with the bourbon it's really nice i think my next band name is going to be raspberry sweetness raspberry sweetness there you go it's great uh-huh. be the new jimmy world uh, no i don't Maybe? think it will be no shit what what are you following that up with <laughs> i can't remember if i had this on the show before um but i've got a ton of it and uh it's just what was at the front of my fridge but eight count eight count from lupulin which is a hazy ipa nice i i literally got two cases of it from a friend so it is hmm. most of what's in my fridge right now wow yeah i mean that sounds i lupulin makes great stuff yeah without been, a doubt we've been praising them quite a bit lately because true i went there a, a, several weeks ago and i uh, came home with a bunch of stuff so that's what i've been drinking lately that's a good point my beer which i'm gonna start with and then get into my drink my drink is great this week don't don't come at me with crossland has another crappy drink this week i bought some beer for andrew our editor who's going to be here in or who's going or who was here not was going to was here last weekend near me in wilmington hanging out and we actually didn't end up drinking it but i bought a variety pack of voodoo ranger classic easy drinking for you know an in-between on the other things that we were going to have and we just didn't break into it so i broke it into it today and started drinking the juicy haze ipa by voodoo ranger just a solid good nice hazy juicy ipa what else is in that variety pack is the 1985 Uh, no no okay it's experimental, which is, I think, only in the variety pack. And then there's, uh, I think, a... God, there's a different... There's, like, the classic Voodoo Ranger. And then there's one that... He's got a Hawaiian shirt on. I don't remember what it is, but it's super good. I've had it a couple of times. Yeah. My cocktail <laughs> is a shaken daiquiri. So, as opposed to the blended ice, I actually, like... I've never... You know, as opposed to like the Mexico experience or the poolside experience of getting served a frozen blended drink, I prefer to take those flavors and just remove kind of the the slush from it. So, so like really making easy. an actual version of the drink that they're bastardizing by slushifying it. See, I <laughs> is is it actually the bastardization? Yeah. I feel like that's yeah, okay. Okay, yeah, it's originally not a frozen drink. Same with a margarita. Well, good to know. So the recipe is really simple basically it's just portions and how much you want to have uh four ounces of simple syrup to three quarter ounce lime juice to one and a half ounces of rum white rum uh shaken with ice poured without in my opinion i don't like the ice cubicles floating around mm-hmm. but i did drop a large whiskey cube in this one just to keep it cold because our podcast is long so yeah but not not the many cubed ice just just the one ice boy so not to get super like i don't know pretentious about drinks or anything like that you're allowed what you're having right now it is a daiquiri much like uh okay it's a daiquiri but it's also technically a rum sour hmm. that that is the that is the makings of a sour is simple syrup lime juice and a spirit so this is a rum sour a margarita is a tequila sour hmm. that's and, interesting i mean that's why they're so fucking good we like sours <laughs> True, true. Yeah. Yeah, and there's something about like fresh squeezed lime juice that's just so much better. Cannot absolutely like even if you don't have like a little 
you know, juicer mallet handle thing. It's not that hard to like cut it into reasonable squeezable pieces and just squeeze it yourself. It's, it's something that seems unnecessary when you hear like, Oh, fresh lime juice versus just the store-bought like bottled lime juice. But it's, it's one of the few things that actually lives up to all the hype that bartenders talk about when they say like make sure you're using fresh fresh squeezed lime juice like it, it makes fresh it citrus seem, yeah citrus in general yeah right it, it's so fucking worth it yeah so with that let's move into last week's predictions we've got a couple to talk about here mostly all made just last week so anyone who's following along will be able to laugh at pj for his largely incorrect answers uh there are no death pool answers in this one right Technically Ragnar. I actually forgot about that. Oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck. Um, Yeah, so Ragnar's dead. You said he's going to live. No, Mm. I'm pretty sure you said he's going to live. No, I said he's going to die and it's going to be meaningful. Episode zero. Scroll, (laughs) scroll, scroll. I, there are very few people that I was that I said was going to live, Crossland. Oh, you did say dead inspirational. No, good call. (laughs) Good call. You did say it was going to be inspirational. All right. Fuck. So I feel like your context implied that it was going to happen at a different point, but you're I, you're right. Context means nothing in Deadpool's. <laughs> to a Deadpool. That's fine. All right. <laughs> you got to go grab a bottle of liquor. So while Crossland's away, I'd like to take this time to uh, let everybody know that I am planning on usurping the show. I've I returned <laughs> with... I, I've, I've returned it's the worst because i have no idea what you said i have with the vodka i have a new host picked out uh we're going to usher crossland out quietly it'll be a quote-unquote mutual decision for him to leave the show and move on but it will be uh forceful and wrathful and uh hopefully he cries a little bit that's really upsetting <laughs> All right, so pour it out for Ragnar. Taking a taking a pull for Ragnar. There you go. <coughs> of an Icelandic vodka, no less. Oh, there you go. Which feels closely appropriate. It's yes. not perfect, but it's close. Yeah, I wonder what liquor they drink there, or if it's just uh, like the blood of their enemies. It's it's not only the blood of their enemies, but it's like the blood of their enemies with icy boys directly from the snow on the ground. Okay. <laughs> small small icy boys. <laughs> many many everything's a slushy. It's the blood of your enemy slushy. That's that's what we're getting back to here. Perfect. All right. With that, we have your other predictions outside of the Deadpool. Fuck me. So who do you think was in the other ship? Do you agree that it was Cassius? You said I said yes, it was Cassius, which I was right, but I also said it was not Asia. And it just, it would it wouldn't yeah. have made sense for Aja to be there, and uh, that is incorrect on my part. So I will drink for that one. Yes, you will. So the next question was: How will Alia Snow Sparrow, Ragnar's mom, react to his return? Alia. Will the Obsidians agree? Alia, I thought it was Alia. You literally wrote it in the script later as Alia. Ah, Lee. Uh. Oh, Ah, Lee. Uh. Got it. Yeah, I see it now. We're good. So. <laughs> How will Ali uh, Snow Sparrow <laughs> react to his return? You said. Oh, she's going to be cold. And a similar conversation between Ragnar and Alia. Yeah, I, I felt like it was going to be a, fi- a similar kind of cold, but still kind of loving conversation. 
between mother and son. Ragnar would sort of act in a leadery way and kind of prove that he's become a better man under Darrow or with Darrow, but doesn't doesn't fucking matter because all she gets to talk to is a corpse so that's a cold conversation i guess (laughs) that definitely is a cold conversation it's so interesting too and this is something we'll definitely have to talk about later but she does kind of hold it up as like an idol of what she's saying she's holding it up for the opposite intentions of what he stood for you know yeah later oh my god anyway I, I don't know why I hadn't like thought to put that in the notes, but yeah, definitely a thing, of course. So yeah, you well, drink. Yeah, I think I I think I lose on that one. You do, you do. Yep. And the reaction of Sefi to Ragnar's return story, everything else. Darrow's return was the story. Final one. Or no, Ragnar. Ragnar's return. Uh, yeah. So what I what I said was it was going to feel similar in kinship and in emotion to Darrow meeting back up with Kieran doesn't really give it a chance for that to happen with Ragnar bleeding out in the snow. No. In that respect, I think, I think, I think I'm wrong, but yeah, lots of, lots there, of, like there's a lot mem- of, there's a lot of these questions that you asked me that I feel like these were a trap because I feel like <laughs> no matter what I said, the answer would, would be, nope, you're wrong. Cause Ragnar's dead. And I think you did it on purpose. <laughs> you know there is an element of that here this week <laughs> but yeah these are all traps where it's like guess these kind of specific things <laughs> but oh I no mean, fuck they're, you they're vague. it doesn't happen ragnar's dead they're vague enough mm. so yeah you're wrong you drink yeah. okay i did put defend yourself into the notes because like i didn't know how to make the call on that one it's not the same because Ragnar's dead, but they do have a He's not dead. reaction they, they have to a, each other. They have a um, a little bit of a well. He's dying. Forth. I mean, but yeah. But the conversation I could I could make the argument that, but that that conversation didn't really happen between Darrow and Kieran, where he's talking about like all the things that he did for her as a child and stuff like that. Right. Right. the The conversation is identical. Instead, it centers around family. Right. Which is, I mean, you get you get an element of that. It's just him and Safi, like, right, as kind of polar opposites. Mm-hmm. So, with that, let's get into the chapters. We've got for our breakdown up first, chapter twenty-eight, feast. So, that's a an ominous name in this context. Yeah, I mean, especially with the last the the like cliffhanger we ended on was talking about the cannibals, among other things, the crash ship. And everything else and wondering what was going to happen. And we get a very, very like spooky setup and scene here. Mm-hmm. The The line that caught me off guard the most was the Institute taught us the sound of teeth on a raw meat on 215. And just wow. All of the scene building in the first couple of pages is intense. Yeah. Like we knew we knew that happened. We knew that they ate raw meat when they couldn't have fire and stuff like that. Like when they didn't have the means of making fire. It's just actually putting it to words is a little bit visceral. Yeah, right. It's also interesting to think back to that and think about how much, how different the series feels compared to that first book, right? Yeah. We get kind of flashes of it in this section. And it it makes me curious about, even now, they're five years out. 
it, things have changed so much, but the society as a whole, every peerless guard seems to maintain the definition of themselves that they they found or were bestowed upon them from their time at the institute. Mm-hmm. Like it, it doesn't it doesn't make sense to me how that can have such a such a latching and I'm trying to I'm trying to think of the right words to put to this. I I, I don't understand how this hasn't this cycle hasn't been broken of being defined. It's like being defined by what you were in high school, which I mean, yeah, if high school I'm was a dramatic series like what I was of, in high school. And I, that's, I know that's you weren't fair. Either, but it's it's like maintaining that identity for the rest of your life. It seems odd. I think it's more I I definitely understand where you're coming from on the side of the institute and the way that that shapes people what i think is that it's meant to mold them in a specific direction which is close like if we take lorn as the prime example of what a peerless guard should be right it's pushing them away from some of the pixie attitudes that a lot of other golds share and some of that is you know realistically we haven't seen a whole ton of the other golds right like right. we don't i think we talked lot. about this a couple weeks ago like we we've only really met peerless scarred except for except for Pliny. pliny yeah yeah and so like we're pretty much only talking to the elite aggressive people yeah but there are a ton of golds out there that are nobodies it'd that be like, like really don't matter it'd be like coming to earth and only talking to the lizard people <laughs> oh yeah yeah I, for a fucking second there, I didn't hear you laughing. And I was like, is he being completely serious and like pulling this off? And I'm just laughing to myself quietly. I was like, what the fuck? No, you're you're right, though. There is this sort of otherness that the Institute creates in people. And I think what's what's really interesting is I, I don't know if it's just sort of the changes that have happened over time over the course of five years or if it's the box that really shifted Darrow. And a lot of me wants to say it's the box because I don't think Mustang behaves that differently. No, I feel like she was no. imprinted on. Yeah, like that's true. and I feel like everyone's been imprinted on by some of the the Institute is kind of like a baseline experience that everyone shares. Right. And then everything grows out from there. Yeah, that's true. You're right. I don't know. It, it's still, yeah, it, it still I mean, just seems like a small part of their life with so much room to grow from. But still, they're defined by it. Yeah. Also, to bring it back to something I think we talked about two weeks ago, Quicksilver made a really good point about the way that golds kind of stay in their station to some degree, right? They're not really evolving or changing or trying to improve upon things. They're just maintaining a status quo, Mm -hmm. which is to hold everyone else down, right? right? And I think to some degree, that's the place of the Institute is to maintain the status, the emotional, moral, ethical status quo and sort of the hardened the hardened edge of golds. So, right. I don't. Yeah, I I agree with you. I just think that it's an interesting it's an interesting thing that exists in the back of the psyche of Peerless Guard and the shamed mm-hmm. to you know fail out. So, right. So from there we move into the cannibal striking out of the ship. You know, attacking them. They're described despicably with human bones and breastplates stitched together. Four breastplates stitched together, shoulder pads, everything else. It's it's like it's terrifying stuff it reminds me kind of of like a necromancer that you'd see in a lot of other fantasy but 
in in like a cannibal giant person it's, it's like terrifying the, it, it reminded me of uh the butcher from diablo 3 totally i was thinking the necromancer from diablo 2 diablo 3 yeah so. <laughs> well i mean i, but I was in the exact same right <laughs> yeah yeah great, it's great games by the way excellent if, games. if you if you are one of those people that played diablo 3 right when it came out and kind of wrote it off as terrible give it another shot because they've fixed it yes which is crazy to say a lot of games don't go back and fix it but they actually did i i think that the the nagal and the whole language thing is also very interesting it's horrifying and it's enhanced by it's almost like monosyllabic translation slash like monosyllabic form the fact that it's all just very clean cut in the way that they say everything it's just it's surgical but brutish Uh, i I'm not picking up what you're putting down there. <laughs> so on on 217, right? Like if you read the dialogue that the woman says who's about to be struck down by Darrow by the golden death, right? Or like the, the hands of the gold. All of that is almost all of that is monosyllabic, right? So it's all very straight lined. We were talking about Lord of the Rings the other day for a bit and some of the like language and things like that. And I think Nagal is really the only language that pierce brown kind of built and Mm -hmm. i think that it's unique so right here 217 stained sun kill me i will rise golden yeah okay yeah i'm i agree with you i just didn't understand what you were what you had meant yeah it's just sort of the the precise short abrupt hemingway nature of the sentences Mm -hmm. yeah it, this this entire section reminded me of something out of a science fiction horror movie or a science fiction thriller movie as though it could fit into Alien or the game Prey or, you know, any any number of spaces yeah. out there where you get kind of the, the horrifying thing jumping out of the dark at you. Almost Bioshock. Yeah. But not quite. Not quite. Not quite in the same way. It's got a similar element of yeah. horror, though. I, I see where you're coming from on that. So during the scavenging, though, after killing the cannibals that were there, we find signs that Cassius was within the ship and that he seemingly must have survived because his body isn't there. There's nothing there to identify him. Why is his ring there? Good question. Probably just didn't wasn't wearing it. Took it off. Why? Could have been someone else's ring. Why take it off? I don't I don't. It seems really. I wear no rings. It seems just so weird. Hmm. It didn't say his ring specifically, right? It just said a House Mars ring. That, uh, yeah, that's true. But it would, I, I agree the, with you on the, its implication. The sort of subtext of how they reacted to that ring was, this is Cassius's. To me, what sold me was the earring, was Mustang's earring. Yeah. You know, the the ring was more like a, okay, it could be. And then the earring was like, it, it definitely is. Right. That doesn't mean that the ring is validated as it being Cassius's, though. But I, I definitely see where that's coming from. Mm-hmm. The collection of rings. You know, I think that it's <laughs> to get back to what we were saying at the beginning of this. There's potential that, like, he also doesn't really give a shit that much about the Institute outside of losing his brother. And so, like, he doesn't wear the ring. He probably feels a little bit of shame for why, the place that he had in Mars House. Why have it here? Maybe just to wear it during, like, diplomatic things if he has to wear I'm, it? I'm sure that okay. would be the, the case. I would agree with that. But to to exactly what you're saying on the front end, he probably wants to disconnect from a lot of that memory, especially considering the guy he partnered with for most of it is the leader of a rebellion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I don't know. 
That's true. Fair. So what'd you make of Ragnar's story of his mom? Yeah, it's it's heartbreaking to like he 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 wanted so much to be seen as strong as strong as fucking possible and kind of kind of stumbled into it accidentally and i don't know almost fucking died yeah only lived because he was smart enough to understand what was happening yeah right and i think it's maybe even worth bringing up now his mom's story is completely the opposite and is used in opposite weight in the conversation that's being had at that time when you know he's dead of course it's Mm -hmm. It's a fascinating comparison, and Ragnar is using it to open up and be honest, and Aaliyah is <laughs> <laughs> using it to manipulate others. Right. So, very, very interesting duplicity between the two characters. What about Mustang following up Ragnar's story and opening up about her mother? What do you think about that conversation? I think I think there's a few things there, and I think one of the biggest things is probably a show of vulnerability intentionally, a show mm-hmm. of warmth and a show of opening up to Darrow, probably because she senses that he still has apprehension towards trusting her. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's because she happened to want to share it. I, th- I think there's probably a l- something a little bit more calculated about her choosing to open up there. And I think it's directed at Darrow. I mean, that's the biggest thing I gleaned from it. I think uh, the story itself is kind of fucked up. Tragic. She called her mischievous. Mischievous. And I'm, mm-hmm. I, I'm curious to learn more about that because that wasn't really dipped into in the story. Yeah. I, and some of that might be embellishment from her dad, right? Because that's ultimately the lens of whom the story is being told from. I also find it really interesting that Nero... Uh, basically convinced himself that she fell off and didn't kill herself, right? Uh, convinced convinced himself himself. or just lied to himself actively? I think that counts as convincing yourself if you're lying to yourself actively. No, but But, but not, it's whether or not you believe it at, at, in the end. No, that's fair. He's, yeah, he's telling himself that that's what happened. Sure. Yeah. I, I can definitely agree with that and see it. I just feel not, not admitting not letting himself admit what actually happened. Yeah, right. Because it would have broken him. Like, and yeah. so instead he chose to be strong and to not not think that that was the case and to think that she slipped. It's, yeah. The it's other, tough. The other way that you could look at this is uh, she didn't go out alone on that walk and he went with her. And killed her? Yeah. I don't, I don't think that's the case. Quit your moping. Can't stand it anymore. Push. <laughs> okay no she slipped well i mean like he's he's definitely murdered people before yeah. so it's a it's a stretch but it's a stretch you know, I, I think it, i think it's more just yeah the way more, that more everything was described in this it, it makes sense that she jumped based on mm-hmm. the outward outwardly shown emotions yeah yeah i think there's also nice duality here that exists between ragnar and Mustang's story about their parents uh, patriarch and matriarch respectively and both being just sort of the center point of power in the family and their want for only the strongest to survive you know like mustang's other sibling and for ragnar to hold on tighter flying him away hoping that he might fall off you know it, mm-hmm. it's just it's a complicated and complex 
interlacing of stories between the two. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So again, at the very end of the chapter here, do you believe Mustang when she says, and if I can be something else, I will be. Yeah. And I think we touched on this a little bit, a little bit earlier when we were talking about the Institute. I genuinely think Mustang is one of the most consistent and uh, solid characters morality wise from start to finish or start to present, I guess that mm-hmm. there is in the book. Like there, there is very little change in what she believes. And I think all of this question of whether or not Mustang is, is telling the truth is coming from Darrow's own insecurities and his paranoia. And that's been amplified by his time in the box. And, but it, but it's not like it wasn't there from the beginning. And he, he just doesn't trust. He doesn't, he, he's predisposed to not trust gold in general. And Mustang was kind of the first one that he seemed to connect with on that sort of level. And that's, that's a tough hurdle to, to overcome in that mindset. I, I feel like so maintaining that level of distrust while learning about Mustang, it, it's, it's bound to kind of bring in some paranoia from, from Darrow's perspective. So I, I think any of that, any of that, line of thinking i think is strictly in darrow's head because she seems to exhibit a very very consistent moral compass throughout the entire series yeah i'd agree there's there's no backstabbing there's no additional plotting there's no nothing else for the most part she says what she means there's just that constant suspicion of goals you know that's that's the only thing that i think exists which is fair but like totally fair but yeah and she's an augustus so Right. We we can't trust those. Like Victor. Those folks. Is a Julia. Vic- right. Can't trust them. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's only two Augustuses left, so. That we know of. Maybe there's. Well. Maybe there's some little botchling of a, of a younger sister <laughs> crawling around. <laughs> no. The Witcher style. Um, oh, no. Oh. Uh, <laughs> so, with that, <laughs> we go into <laughs> chapter 29, Hunters. So this chapter hurts, man. Every time I read it, I just it hurts. It does. So it's after beautiful, a plan, Like it is beautiful. It is. The combat's beautiful. The sentiment's beautiful. Like it, it's it's well done. It's well crafted. It doesn't make me any less sad. It's also cinematic as shit. It it really is. Especially the yeah. We'll, we'll get to it when we get to it. But I definitely agree with you this this entire chapter i think maybe with the last chapter as like the intro to the episode would be chapter 20 and 29 is an episode in and of itself ending with the very beginning of chapter 30 with sefi arriving yep yep it's it's just it's easy it's right there straight up just lift it off the page transpose it to screen we're done cool we wrote the episode we're good yep thanks pierce there we go Yeah, so (laughs) after a careful plan to ensure they're discovered by the Valkyries, the group finally runs into Cassius and Aja. They kind of decide to go Severo's route as though he had been as he had kind of complained about Darrow not doing before, which is to say the violent route of taking people out while they have the opportunity to do so. Yeah. Yeah. And even Mustang agrees with this idea. Who's the one? Is it Holiday that fights back on it a little bit? I think so. I think, Holiday's like you're going to. Because I, I, I know there's some some pushback. And I, 
in in my first like thought of it, I thought it was Mustang, a Mustang, but I, I'm pretty sure it's Holiday. It's definitely a tough decision to make, and I think Darrow understands that there is some truth to what Severo was saying in the past. Mm-hmm. But and this seems like an opportunity that they shouldn't pass up, so they they don't try to. But Darrow doesn't remember that you don't fight Aja and you you don't fight River and you don't fight Aja. So like, why didn't you? fucking moron (laughs) so before this started how did you think it was gonna go um i thought much like every single other interaction with them primarily just kind of two particles bouncing off each other and no no real annihilation on either side yes last time they met trig died but trig was also a new character that we didn't care about that much yet so it was okay (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but this time but this time it's, it's not Ragnar. okay fuck Ragnar no mm-hmm. it's um it's a lot at this point to to take in as far as the, the death goes of course but before we get there I love the callback here with Cassius I swim just as well as you remember after Cassius is like I thought you drowned I think it's a great callback to the time when they had to swim out to the middle of the lake to avoid capture by Mustang and the Institute. There's a lot of kind of nice flashes of the Institute in this yeah. chunk of the They were in that lake for hours, weren't they? I think it was I think it was it several was, yeah. hours. It was it wasn't just several hours. I, I for some reason it was leaning towards closer to like a half day or something like that. Yeah. Like it was aggressive. But like fourteen hours. It was or a long time. Like yeah. Yeah. They ended up treading water forever. Mm-hmm. Which Ah, those were the days. Ah, those days when Cassius was a bud and not a f- and, fuckwit. And Reg- or, and uh, Mustang was out to kill them. Yes. <laughs> how how the turntables. <laughs> Indeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love that callback. It's great. It's great to kind of get another flash of the Institute back here. What do you think about the spoken bo- blows between Ragnar, Darrow, and Aja? You know, kind of the the various slave language that she lash, lashes out to both of them with, yeah, and whatnot. I, I think the the thing that stood out the most to me was how much the, the, there was a very explicit attempt by Aja to uh, disillusion Darrow of who Ragnar was by like telling him about what Ragnar used to do with and for her father and uh like what mm-hmm. he would do after the fighting pits and shit like that and it just falls flat like there, there's no yeah. real follow-up to it darrow doesn't seem bothered by it ragnar understands that he's already owned up to all of it and has legitimately become a different person and knows that darrow knows that too like it it's a an attempt that just fails but they don't give a whole lot of additional like thought to it beyond just letting her talk herself out a little bit yeah ultimately she's providing like background and context to some of the things from the ash lord's perspective as to what he is Mm -hmm. but ultimately it doesn't amount to anything to the two of them because they are blood brothers as is said later and previously and uh, and i don't i don't think any of that was like anything ragnar was hiding no definitely not it likely spoken off screen yeah probably yeah but it was also a good a good way to narratively tell us exactly what it what he was like prior to being free Mm -hmm. yeah it gives us a perspective also of like the idea that there are also obsidian arenas right where these folks are fighting well we knew that already that's been talked about 
specifically i think with ragnar previously but it, it gives yeah it lends a little bit of like the sort of prize or glory that's attached to it the the i don't want to call weightiness isn't the right word but gives it something else mm-hmm. it's not like it's useless information tucked in here and i think that it it does exactly what we were saying in an underhanded way it's sort of it's sort of a so what moment between darrow and ragnar right like they're they're very aware of this they're obviously fighting against the society which is shackled these expectations on them so yeah you know it's not really an insult it's not as though she's talking to golds and saying something insulting exactly it's completely different and uh, maybe that's maybe that's her not quite understanding the not not quite understanding them and maybe it's her really just kind of grasping for something that might like force a rift between the two of them but i like to think it's just golds really are kind of out of touch from who they employ and who they enslave so much so that what they find horrifying they they don't they don't take a step back to realize that it's horrifying because they're forced to do it by them mm-hmm. yeah that it's ultimately the will of the golds that puts it there right that makes it real yeah that's that's a good analysis on that as well I think the other chunk that's interesting about Aja to consider here is that there is a wide age gap to some degree between her and Dara, right? There's there's a larger than generational gap. She's 50 and Dara right now is between... He's 23. He's like 23? Yeah, I was going to say between or 23 no, and 24. N- no, how old is he when he goes to... He's 18. Some other people are he, as yeah, young as 16. He's 18. So yeah, he's 23. Yeah. yeah. Because this is five years yeah. out, five years out from the Institute. Correct. So, yeah, I mean, literally doubled the lifetime almost on Aja. Or actually five and years out from when, though? If it's five years out from the beginning, then he's 23. But if it's five years out from the end, he's 25. I think in total, since we started the story, five years have passed. Okay. So he's 23. He's between 23 and 24. Okay. So... Yeah, I mean, there's there's an entire generational gap that exists between the two, which is also a gap of understanding. There are clearly some revolutionaries like Mustang that are within some of the peerless guard. They're probably not as prevalent, but there there are likely some of them. And so there's this kind of like counter dialogue that clearly exists. And she's, you know, just a boomer. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Right. <laughs> kind of. Kind of kind of boomer lingo. Like, it's not effective. It's um, like, yeah, you forced this. Because you brought it up with Mustang, yeah. she kind of exhibited the, the traits of what would make a revolutionary while she was in the Institute. But I feel like a lot of those thoughts are really solidified by her time in the uh, board. It was the board of quality control, right? That she she studied under the, um, the cultural board or whatever it was, where she, she wrote yeah. a bunch of papers on like different society or different colors traditions and cultures and stuff i feel like it was she wrote those for the board of quality control i don't know if she worked under she was working somewhere on luna though she definitely was working under the sovereign but i I know i know there was something with board of quality control or something like that 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 she had several published papers um that yes yeah were i feel like kind of pivotal in her in solidifying her sort of thoughts on revolution and thoughts on compassion towards the lower colors. Oh, I definitely agree. I think that it's very well planted throughout the series that Mustang is a revolutionary. Yeah, I, I just, I just kind of wonder the, where that 
I wonder where that consciously comes into her mind, if it's before or after the Institute. So for me, I think it goes back, and this is obviously, this is kind of a late in the game stake here, but if we're talking about the character linearly, I think it goes back to the whole, the stories that she's told in childhood and the fact that she's raised by the telemanagers. That's a good point. In a very different gold household. Yeah. In addition to having the exact opposite perspective of the telemanagers in her own family, her own father, mm-hmm. even though she protects him as much as she possibly can because he's still family. Yeah. I, I think that it's a mix of the two. And I do agree with you, though. I think that that also definitely influenced her. Right. But yeah, no doubt. Mm-hmm. Ragnar's speech here where he announces all of his titles, recounting kind of the the differences between what he was when we were introduced to him in Golden Sun as the stained gift from the Ash Lord and everything else that he announces there to what he says now is the Shield of Tinos and all of these other great things. It's just so different. It's, it's revolutionary the way that this character has changed from someone who was scary and depressive and terrifying he's still scary a, a <laughs> and depressive and terrifying uh, yeah like physically intimidating but i'm i'm saying like his qualities have shifted from you know an evil boss who would look down at you the things he and then swing at your head the things he takes pride in and titles himself as yes yeah are, are yeah it's shifted they've they've almost 360 to some degree 180 yep <laughs> yep <laughs> the fuck <laughs> um yeah no they they definitely have completely completely shifted since he's now like broken his own chains mm-hmm. i can't help but wish that like holiday would have seen cassius push aja and would have adjusted so that aja would have died right now yeah because damn it because damn it fuck <laughs> fuck man the the rest of this this entire rest of this chapter is beautifully written it's wonderful. It's great. The The whole fight where Ragnar decides to take on Aja is brilliantly crafted. The execution of Ragnar is difficult. I just, yeah. man, I have a tough time even I'm, keeping it together going through this so part. The one thing that I'm curious about there is when I don't see Aja as the kind of person who delivers a killing blow that doesn't actually kill the target. Yeah. Like, that doesn't seem like her to leave him kind of wheezing with a, a couple a couple minutes of last consciousness after she's gone. Like, for someone who's so swift and brutal and delivers a really brutal killing blow after he's already, like, been knocked down and defeated, mm-hmm. for him not to die there makes sense narratively and for, for, the, for the way the story makes sense, but doesn't doesn't seem like something that 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 seems like a loose end that Aja just wouldn't leave. Yeah, I think the only part that really connects is the fact that she has to go because Cassius there shortly after is skewered through the neck or shortly before is skewered through the neck with an arrow. I mean, it's a flick of the and wrist that like it's the difference of a flick of the wrist. Perhaps perchance. I don't know. I agree with you on the fact that it does seem it is definitely a question mark because Aja definitely seems like the person to finish someone off. I also think Aja is the person to stand over someone and finish them off. <laughs> you know, like I think she's also she, a kind of person who would sit there with her foot on someone's chest, talk down at them and then cut their head off. Right. But to, to make a quote unquote killing blow and for them not to die does not seem like a, a mistake that Aja makes. The only other part that I would throw into your 
problem with the the death here is that Ragnar is the biggest, baddest stained that we know of, that I know of. And for those reasons alone, he's a tough fighter, I guess. Yeah, but that just means his it's not that perfect. just means his like his anatomy's big. His, that makes him he's easier got a big target. Member? Like, well, I mean, clearly he's got a hog <laughs> on him. Like, let's be serious about that for a second. <laughs> but, but she she stabs him in the chest, right? Uh, I thought she sliced through him. Maybe that's what I I don't remember. It's it's definitely worth looking at. It just regard it, it doesn't matter that much. It, it just seems. For as somebody as calculated and swift as she is, and even the quote, the quote right in there, Aja doesn't miss. That's a miss mm-hmm. in my in my mind. Leaving the the possibility of being saved does not seem like something she would leave on the table. I don't know though. It's I, I think the best answer is it's plot armor, which I'm totally fine with, but I would like to bring up the fact that things the fact that Ragnar lived as long as he did completely shifted how the interactions with Sefi would go. Yeah, of course, because he's actually alive and can can say all of those things are very important. It's pivotal, I'd say. I, I'd say without Ragnar, without Ragnar being um, conscious enough to talk to Sefi, um, I don't think she would believe that he wasn't Darrow's slave or Mustang's slave or whoever. Okay, so I got the answer on where where the blade went through. So severed his spinal column and split through to his stomach, but not all the way through him, like cutting him in half. Okay. So roughly half the body. So he was bleeding profusely, like he was dead. There was no way he was surviving. But I can... And then she immediately jumped into the crevasse because she was being shot at by Mustang the whole time. Yeah. It's it's still a minor wrist movement that she pulled up and out instead of across and over and out no she pulled through she like oh through. okay okay because it was around behind him and then got him yeah yeah maybe maybe because the the willow way is like you're flowing like a willow branch right so you like wrap around people and then pull back yeah and i i'm not i'm not saying that this I, is i totally bad agree with thing what that you're saying I, as well I, I think on, it's on the side of interesting though it's it's important for the plot and other things like that i just think that there's a little bit more defense in the text but i do see what you're saying of course lends itself to kind of the narrative mm-hmm. no yeah and then after delivering the killing blow to ragnar she just fucking vanishes yep but cassius is gurgling on his blood so that's kind of a win <laughs> right okay i'm kind of okay with i that. really uh, like I don't think I dwelled on that long or long enough that Mustang shooting him in the throat after he kind of wrote off her threat as empty was so satisfying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was that was very, very solid writing. Every time that I've read or reread or re-listened to the scene, I think it becomes a little bit more. I mean, obviously, it's predetermined because it's written down, right? It's on the fucking page, but it becomes a little bit more. It is fate, right? Ragnar eventually was going to be faced with insurmountable odds in which he is just a blunt instrument, the best blunt instrument that you could ever ask for. And he was going to lose, mm-hmm. but he lost to the, the fucking best razor wielder in the entirety of the society in the entire universe. Yeah, but he was also confident he would win. Yeah. Well, yeah, because he's a blunt instrument and doesn't know any better. Right. And Darrow believed him. And Darrow mm-hmm. asked, "Can you beat Aja?" He's like, "Yes." All right, let's go for th- let's go through with this. Like, oh, mm-hmm. yeah. maybe you think about that more. <laughs> maybe you should have considered it a little bit before you agreed, <laughs> there, buddy boy. 
Yeah, it's man, it's tough. So we move into chapter 30, which is the quiet referring to, of course, Ragnar's sister, Steffi, the quiet. And technically Ragnar at this point. Oh, I mean, not quite like Mm -hmm. soon, but yeah. Oh, yeah. Not quite. (laughs) But Ragnar's death is here on the page. (laughs) And the introduction to Steffi in this context just hurts the way that he remembers and recants all of these things about their childhood together. It's just jarring, painful. But touching. You just want better. It's still touching. But touching. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely touching. Mm-hmm. It. Yeah. Man. <sighs> How do you feel about the death of Ragnar? I, it was it was sad. Like it, He's for good reason. I think one of the most like lovable characters in this story. He's, he's a misunderstood brutish monster, just like Darrow is at this point. Mm hmm. Aja's own words, abominations, both yeah, of them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which I found that interesting. That's the that's the same word I used to describe Darrow, I think, episode one of this book. You've used it a couple of times, but yes. But specifically yeah. when talking about the, fa- the, the way he was carved and how he will be viewed in society as an abomination. Like, it, I, I felt justified in, in that <laughs> by her. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I think you... I think you were justified and are justified by her using that term. It feels very on the nose Mm -hmm. because she is calling out exactly what you're talking about in terms of the way that society will view him. If society as it stands continues and doesn't form something else in its, you know, wake. Right. But Ragnar is somebody who we've seen go through the same transformation in mindset that Darrow did on a much Mm -hmm. faster scale. Um, yep. just from him not being the main character and we're not listening to his every thought. So we're, we're seeing him transform in this way, but we're also able to draw parallels to like how he was treated and how he was raised and who he was versus who he is now. And, mm-hmm. and the implications that brings for the, the revolution and the society as a whole. And it it, it is a very easy comparison to Darrow. Like it, it's, the same but different with Darrow. Same, same, same reasons. Same, same chains being broken. Same veil being lifted from their eyes. Just Ragnar's a fucking monster of a person and uh, can beat to death pretty much anybody that comes in front of him. Man, there's there's obviously the original differences of the sort of status that Darrow and Ragnar occupy right at the start of their own stories. Mm -hmm. Darrow is a red slave who is toiling away underground to provide helium three, which is really just a resource that Quicksilver and the Augustuses are selling to earn money to power their, their own growth and their own empires respectively. Ragnar is a, a tool of entertainment and a tool of war liberated from a patriarchal society or matriarchal society that only survives to breed warriors for masters of whom throw them into cages and into coliseums to fight and to become the best and to go to war. I, I think there's so they there's a lot more than I think there's a lot more parallels between Darrow and Ragnar pre-revolution pre-wool being pulled from their eyes um then i think you're giving credit for like ragnar is the prince of the valkyrie like he he is 
he is the sort of the person of high station, the person that everyone looks up to within that society. So is Darrow as a hell diver. Oh, yeah. No, that's that's a great point. So having that sort of real responsibility and clout within within their own little oppressed societies might be something that's kind of important to to their transformations. Yeah, that that's a great point, too. They were respectively leaders in their own rights inside of their, you know, microcosms before they escaped them mm-hmm. in their own ways. Right. Hmm. Yeah, I'd like to I'd like to sit down and do a, a deeper sort of analysis of the similarities between Ragnar and Darrow at at similar points in their lives, because I think it'd be a really yeah. interesting thing to to analyze. I think they've got good good comparison points that's you you brought up good points that also i hadn't completely considered so Mm. it's interesting there there are also traces throughout this reading but the distancing of darrow from his views of faith uh, faith in the veil faith faith in a number of things including even eo's dream eo in general has become more extreme since the box even in ragnar's dying moments a lot of Ragnar's dying proclamation to him is to speak to him waiting in the veil, talking with Eo, building a house, but he's not a good builder. You know, there, there's all of this, this sort of chatter about the afterlife. And Darrow's sitting there regretting kind of have even have told told him about the veil because he doesn't really believe in it. He feels very his his faith is very shaken. So at this point. I at risk of like I, I'm by no means trying to sound any any way insensitive about this or um like I, I know I'm not the the most perfectly educated about this, what I'm about to say. So I, I'm trying to be as respectful and like just know it's it's not coming from anything like negative. This reminded me a lot of accounts of people coming out of the Holocaust and out of concentration camps. Hmm. Being completely broken and uh abandoned like abandoning their faith because there's no way that believing in something higher and that something higher could could allow for this atrocity that happened to them and just being completely sort of marooned in in their own mind of like what 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 is their faith and what do they believe in and how do they interact with people who who went through this with them with the same faith because of their same faith if they don't hold on to it themselves anymore. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I know it's way more intricate than that. And I know I'm, I'm missing things and I know like I'm not an authority on this, but there's no way that we could cover all of that in a podcast of any length or appropriately ourselves. But what, what was it? Um, there, there were, there I, were several get, books that we read in high school. I think you and I both I, did. I was going to say night. Yep, exactly. L.I. Uh, Eli Wiesel is a great example of sort of the same kind of shaking of faith. And while obviously we're comparing a very real, very brutal reality to a fictional created instance of a brutal reality, there is something very real about the box scenario shaking Darrow in. I can understand a sympathetic in a sympathetic way someone who might have empathy from that time frame that makes sense yeah i i just i don't want to come across as like wrong or ins- insensitive or anything like that I, I just that's that's what crossed my mind first was that sort of comparison when thinking about the loss of faith in the veil ver- versus the trauma that he experienced in the box so i know we're digesting a very heavy theme i feel like to put a put a cap on the entire thing 
Darrow's perspective and his loss of sort of religious faith by via the torture and by opposite Ragnar's gaining of faith through exposure and through kind of the hopeful outcome feels very similar to me in the autobiographical work of Viktor Frankl, who wrote Man's Search for Meaning. It kind of explores both sides of that coin. He himself lost some of his faith, but instead gained faith in humanity. And I feel like we see that parallel in Darrow. This isn't a perfect theory or ideology. And of course, we're not equipped humanists who have read, <laughs> you know, widely. We we don't we don't focus on this kind of thing. But I think that it's important to acknowledge that Darrow and Ragnar and the impacts of torture on their lives and kind of the similarity to reality as we like to kind of bring it back to in full circle on history and other events. Mm-hmm. So put a cap on that. Yeah. I, I think that'd be that that's something that's that topic is something that's interesting and I'd, I'd love to reapproach it later when, I, when both of us have more time to really dig into it a little bit and collect our thoughts on it. Look out for that maybe in the future, if there's something else that alludes to, something similar but uh for now i think capping it there is probably a good point yeah yeah i i think that it's worthwhile to discuss and i'm glad we brought it up even if it was just tangentially in trying to tackle that to the the best of our abilities Mm -hmm. so his final words though ragnar's final words live for more just hearts you know directed at Sefi, it makes sense it's kind of this sort of I don't know. It reminds me of, to some degree, like a plague where you pass it on to two people every time you die. You know, you're you're passing I mean, it on yeah, to the he's a martyr the, at that point. Right. Right. Which I would like to say uh, also feeds into my Deadpool uh, prediction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Of him of him being an inspiration, a martyr. And he is. I, I mean, he's he's enough. His death and his faith are enough to shake Sefi into listening to Darrow later. Right. So that's important yeah. here. As far as deaths go and Darrow taking them super hard and not accepting them and not wanting to move on with their mission, I really want to dig into Holiday and what she might be going through because she's constantly sort of dropping hints to him about what what she did for him. In her essentially ab- not abandonment, but putting the mission above her loved one when Trig died. Like Trig wasn't the the mission, Darrow was. So we need to keep going at all costs to complete this mission. And and she's constantly kind of dropping hints about that by showing him Trig's blaster or making comments about like alluding to that like he's not the mission, things like that. And if I was Holiday, I'd be kind of pissed right now. Like how how often he's getting hung up on things that aren't aren't the point. And yeah, kind of leading with his emotions to a certain extent, which is is who he is. It's who Darrow is, but it's also not it's not how you win battles or wars. You need you need to keep going. And uh she sees that as as a hard and fast rule. And he he seems to make exceptions when they're his friends. But yeah, she, I th- ma- I she made a really fucking that- hard sacrifice when it was her, her brother for him, for Darrow. I think it's safe to say that 
Darrow is an empathetic leader, but that doesn't actually get the goal accomplished, which is what I think he kind of starts to come to terms with near the end of this chapter. And I think between the box and the events of this book, even the torture that he's been through, the death of Ragnar, he's pretty badly shaken when he goes into the confrontation with Sefi or with not with Sefi with Alia. Yeah, it's. It's significant, and it's definitely weighing on him. And I, I like your analysis of Holiday and her sort of matter-of-fact nature about the reality of what they need to be doing. It definitely lines up. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a world in which if Holiday led the Rising, and Greys in general, I think, for the most part, especially the like Legion, the elite Greys, have a very different mindset where they are trained for the mission. Yeah, I, w- I will say... This instance with Ragnar is a little bit different because his his presence was pivotal to the plan. Yeah. So reviving true. Ragnar and get, making sure he survives technically is part of the mission. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's it, but the, the point still stands that there there is definitely sort of a a rift in approach between the two of them and how they conduct themselves on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. The The entire move to save Victra, while it worked, was still something that likely cost Trigg his life. And it's like, that's not the mission. It's not the mission to save Victra. The mission is to get you out. Darrow still did it, still pulled it off, but not without sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah. I mean, totally see that. So, we're going to do something that we haven't done previously. We've kind of talked around it or talked about it, but we're going to kind of officially do... Anytime an important character dies, we're going to do a little bit of a post-mortem. So here is to Ragnar's post-mortem. What do you think of him? What do you think of Ragnar the character? I, th- I think we sort of got into it in the last little bit there with... Uh, there, there is a mirror of, of Darrow and, and Ragnar. They, they exhibit some very, very similar traits. And I, I think Darrow can probably see a lot in... A lot of himself in Ragnar and his path in kind of being shown the truth and uh, given the opportunity to, quote, live for more. Mm-hmm. I loved him. Like, who who wouldn't? He is, he is such a fun character. He's crazy. He is huge. He is imposing. But he has a heart of gold. So, I mean, I mean, not that gold, but you know, you know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. yeah, no, he's, he is, I think the, he should be the poster child of what it means to be converted into the sons of Ares and why to the rising. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's the like whole kitten caboodle to, uh, to some degree. Right. Exactly. <sighs> it's man, it's hard for me. I mean, I totally agree with you on the side of the character. I think that he is a great addition to the group he fills kind of the void of pax to some degree is like the big strong man in the room with kind of a funny attitude that we only got a brief flash of with pax in the right. in the first book but he definitely feels kind of like he has that big kind of himbo energy do you think <laughs> do you think that was part of if, if pax lived because we i think we talked about this um Pax dying was kind of a draw the hat kind of deal for Pierce. Yeah. Yeah. Pierce has killed many characters with the hat. Do you think Ragnar would have 
come into prominence if Pax would have survived? So in his head, this is this is a quote from an interview. In his head, he saw Pax and it's paraphrasing from the interview, whatever. He saw Pax and Ragnar as friends when he was imagining kind of the way that the story was going to go and that they would be connected and that they would be kind of like buds playing around with each other. So sparring with each other or something. Yeah, more like like two of the same character, yeah. like kind of just bouncing off of each other, having a good time, even though they're from different sides of society. I think instead we got very different moments where with like Severo and and Ragnar, they kind of bounce off each other where it's kind of friendly, but it's also kind of violent, <laughs> you know, so he kind of I would say replace those moments, but it felt as though they were meant to be friends similar kind of all along right yeah i I just i don't know if there's room for both of them in in as prominent like in as a prominent of a space as rock ragnar took Mm -hmm. like i i wonder if both characters would have suffered pax probably for having yeah having both of them there well either the story gets longer or pax would have suffered because i think ragnar's arc is a little bit more important than what I would imagine the slot that Pax would fill into, right. which is a Mustang adjacent position given Cavax's role in their raising. Yep, exactly. So what do you think of uh, Ragnar's long term impact? You've already mentioned that he's kind of a martyr for the entire rising. We've only got 250 ish pages left, but what's his impact? What do you think his long term impact is going to be in terms of what he contributes to the story you know we've only got like 250 pages left here but then we got the next trilogy what do you think ragnar's impact is on darrow and the characters associated i think the i mean obviously Severo and the howlers will be impacted pretty greatly but i think that'll be more of a loss of a loss of a brother kind of deal i think for the obsidians and for sefi in general he will be an inspiration and a martyr and a a model to follow. I think Sefi will, I, I think she'll, she'll do what she can to strive to be as much like Ragnar as possible and to follow his footsteps and buy into, to what he believed. And by, by extension, the rest of the obsidians will kind of follow that thought process. Okay. All right. I dig. I think that that's, Hmm. I would struggle with what to what to kind of say and fill out in these parts because I don't want to spoil it. For no, you, that's fine. You know? I mean, yeah, yeah. Like you can ju- a, you can just your... say I'm going to leave it at that because I don't want to spoil it. Yeah, like I totally understood right. there. Right. That's that's definitely the way that I'm filling in that statement. So what's uh what was your favorite Ragnar moment? Oh, the the scene where he throws Severo and steals his candy bar. just it it shows his jovial side it shows his jovial side in the way that he's still fucking imposing and just a behemoth of a person Mm -hmm. but it also shows the the strength of the bond that he and several like created together in darrow's absence and really gave gave a another dimension to ragnar's character and to Severus. And to Severus. I, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I would say in both cases, like they feed off of each other well and it's important. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely agree. I think that that's a great moment. I think my favorite Ragnar moment remains the charging scene on the beach in Golden Sun after the EMP is 
going off and it's only he and Darrow taking out the legion of grays and golds that are up there mm-hmm. while all of the other howlers are underneath in their suits still right just how quick all of that happens skewering the handing off of the razor that whole thing to me just screams poetic justice liberation it's it's all right, right. exactly yeah that's that's mine any other thoughts on ragnar um i really want to know what his plan was when he when he would have confronted his mother like i think that it was alluded to that she needed to be dethroned, that he needed yeah, to kill Yeah, but how does that happen without planning with Darrow and Mustang ahead of time? Like, was he, because he, he clearly held that close to, close to the vest until he needed to share it. Yeah, that's true. Like, what, were they I going think- to go in assuming they were going to try to diplomatically have a, like, have it out with Alia and then suddenly Ragnar was going to just bash her face in? Like, that, that wouldn't have gone well, I don't think. No, it wouldn't have. There's I definitely agree with you. I think that it is a difficult line for the story to tread. I think that to to like go through and imagine this scenario, right? I think that it's likely that Ragnar would have gone in and just straight up challenge her to like a duel or something ritual-esque inside of the culture. It it would have been some sort of formal proclamation that obsidians understand that would be uh usurping a power do you think that would have happened though do you think they would have gotten there because there was that prophecy that alia basically spat on and all of the guards were on the lookout for like i i don't i think they i don't know if that would have happened i think they still would have because ragnar is a motherfucker they would have just that would have been a completely different scenario on the whole so just assuming that the story for the most part plays out where they meet alia I feel like that's the outcome, but there would have to be a very different circumstance. Of course, they would probably instead of just infiltrating Asgard, we would also be infiltrating the Spires. Yeah. You know, and and does Sefi come along with them plot point. if Ragnar goes through with that course of action? I think that by and large, the goal here before they got derailed was more to go straight to Asgard before their ship crashed take the golds down and then run them up like they do at the end of this chapter being like your gods are not gods. What are you doing? But they kind of, they, they had to improvise in the middle because Sefi was there and because Ragnar died. Yeah, that's fair. So the plan kind of got swung around with Sefi showing up. I feel like Ragnar would have been able to convince her to go with them to Asgard and then they would have gone through with the plan. If Sefi didn't show up, I think that they probably would have tried to go to Asgard and would have done fine because they did fine (laughs) without many more tools. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just working it out based on the way my brain thinks about it. That's fair. But I see what you're saying. It does feel like it would add a layer of complexity. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, man, hmm. we move into chapter 31 at the Pale Queen. And the whole intro to this chapter just fucking hurts, right? Like, it's all just Darrow's regret, missing Ragnar, everyone else kind of hanging on to this idea. We get another introduction to another cruel environment as though this entire section hasn't been overtly cruel to us this whole time between both the environment and fucking losing Ragnar the way that we did. You know, it's it's brutal. We get a little bit of relief, though, because Cassius is clinging to life with an arrow through his neck mm-hmm. and his fear when he's struck away by the obsidians is just fucking great. <laughs> <laughs> just clamoring on the gr- ground like a child trying to like crawl away is wonderful. Understandable, though, like... What has he known about the Obsidians his entire life? What is what what's he been told? The same thing that everyone has. That they're they are ruthless monsters, which 
mm-hmm. to a certain extent is kind of true. Yeah, I mean, they were crafted to be, yeah. right? So they are. That's that's the reality. This is what gold created. I think I think I've said this before, but Chuck Palahniuk has mentioned in something in his other book, in one of his books, consider this. It's all about writing. The power of paraphrasing something as opposed to saying it to downplay the importance and to kind of swing the weight of a conversation around. And in the conversation in which Darrow, this entire at the beginning of the chapter, he feels like he's drowning in a number of different feelings and he's trying to make up plans like he normally does. And it's paraphrased as opposed to him saying it out loud and Mustang kind of pulls him out of it. It's just a wonderful writing technique to downplay Darrow and to upplay Mustang and give her the power in the conversation being like, no, dude, you need to you need to chill out and not make plans. We needed to think through this in in a different context. We need to listen. We need to talk. It's a very clever writing yeah. technique that I appreciate. And it at the same time, nothing really gets lost. Like, I, I don't feel mm-hmm. like I, I lose any of the interaction. It, it It's not as explicitly stated as a lot of it is, but um, you still get the whole gist of it. And uh, at the time, it didn't really matter that much to me when I was reading it. Like it, I was honestly kind of distracted mentally and emotionally by the loss of Ragnar. So I felt like it was sort of a perfect use of that tactic. Yeah. It is well armed against Darrow in the fact that Mustang kind of talks him out of it, talks him down from his sort of delirious state. The man. Actually, though, going backwards a little bit, I wonder if that sure the use of that sort of <sighs> paraphrasing, as you mentioned, um yep. is because Darrow's also distracted. And this is all from Darrow's perspective and his point of view for the like for the the entire series. It's it's Darrow's point of view the whole time. So if he's mentally distracted by the loss of one of his best friends, he's not going to get all the details of what's going on around him. Yeah, that's that's definitely true, especially considering we are buried in his POV for the entire time, the entire perspective of this trilogy. So it only makes sense for that to also be the outcome is that he ultimately is just kind of listing things off but really isn't focused or even paying attention to them right. yeah yeah so i i think it i think it fit very very well in this instance yeah i i would agree at the very beginning of the episode we talked about nagal and kind of the simplicity of the the single syllable sentence that was constructed by the cannibal i i find it really interesting the way that the Nagalese uses words for multiple meanings, right? But they're they're wider than English is. The, for instance, the word that's used here is rejoha, rejoa, depending on the actual pronunciation of the G A and the O and the J, half the, the R. Well, <laughs> like the whole yeah. Thing. So it, I mean, it, the the way that it's read on page. Yeah. Re, Rajoa, Rogoa, it might be. I mean, we we could listen to the to the audiobook again because it's mentioned. I think people know what we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, the the word for surrender slash subjugation slash slavery, like it, it's it's not just a what what's the what's the phrase for or what's the term for a a word with multiple meanings? Homophone. Yeah, those hom- words sound the yeah, same. Yeah, homophone. 
I guess. I, I think there's a more specific word for it, but homophone, I think, is kind of the umbrella term for it. Synonym. What the fuck am I saying? Homophone no, not synonym. is like the same not word. Not synonym. Synonym is a word having same or nearly the same meaning as... No, this is words. the same word having different meanings, is what I'm saying. Oh. Whereas I think this is the same word having the same meaning. It's just that surrender means the same thing as subjugation means the same thing as slavery to these people. Okay, here's here's the differentiator. When words are spelled the same and sound the same but have different meanings, they're called homonyms. When they are spelled the same but sound different and have different meanings, they're homographs. Yes. This is something entirely different, I think. So it's this, somewhere this, in between. this is the yeah. same word yeah. for what having multiple meanings. No, but they don't. That's the thing. In in this in this language, surrender, subjugation, and slavery are equivalent. Okay. I think that's what they're saying. Is they don't make yes. a distinction between those three things. They are the same thing to them. Mm-hmm. So in, in, in that, in that to, respect, surrender, subjugation, and slavery are synonyms to these people. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, there's, there's another example that I'm sure readers of the entire series know that's prominent in my mind that I can't talk about right now. Okay. There's one word in particular that I know that registers. Totally that fine. That's, I'll look I, out I, for it later. But, but, but I, I think, I think you're, I think you're definitely in the right frame of mind. It's definitely something interesting to talk about with with kind of the full analysis and lens. But yeah, I, getting back to the point of this, though, the fact that those words are equivalent when they hold very different meaning is interesting. Right. I, I really like the way that Nagal kind of simplifies language. I don't know if that's what they're a, getting at here. I think this is a cultural thing. I think I, I think they. Well, it it definitely is a cultural thing. What I'm saying is that on top of that the way that they control them culturally is to control the language. Okay. So if you don't have any other way to express it, you're stuck with this one phrase that covers so many different things. Yeah. But, but we know from, from history and cultures in general that they will find distinctions and they will create distinctions themselves. If it, if it's an important thing to make a distinction about, but the fact of the matter is there, they don't have reason to differentiate those terms yeah or to create a distinction right because ultimately it is the same to them because they only believe in the three touches right the the touch of help the touch Mm -hmm. of sexual reproduction (laughs) and the touch of death those those are the three right i mean it just kind of gets back to this core brutal nature of this society uh, of of the obsidian culture and we, we even get like background on the fact that like people have tried to sail away from here and their ships have been blown up. You know, it's I mean, there's just so, so much like people can't even escape. Right. Yeah. Lee has built up a pretty terrifying figure as a pretty terrifying figure throughout this section. 242, 244. What do you think of our confrontation? Obviously, there's a lot between here and the end with her, but she is referred to as the largest, largest human or largest person that Darrow's ever seen. I think I was surprised that her text wasn't bolded as well. That's yeah. that's the only thing like, that speaks to how she speaks. It, right. She speaks with uh, Orient lingo as well. But she I don't I don't know the right way to describe how I think of her. She seems almost gluttonous with power some in her in her um, interactions. Mm-hmm. And 
I, I know I, I know that there's a parallel that I see in my mind and I have no idea where it comes from, but there's a visual. To me, she feels like an appointed dictator, right? Yeah. Like yeah, she, she kind does. of has this element of, of like, I have control and subjugation because I know the powers that be and the powers that be will ensure that I continue to be in power provided I keep a level of control. But it doesn't necessarily seem like that's how it started. It seems more like she rose to power and then maintained that power through collaboration with the golds. Or she might have inherited it. I mean, that's what I mean by came came to power as in like she she sure she rose to the throne and then from there was kind of intoxicated by the power over everyone else that was essentially afforded to her by gaining knowledge of what the society actually does with the obsidians yeah that's fair i i think that that makes a lot of sense there's there's a lot of Leah's is a complicated and short-lived character yeah. i think that what pierce does really well here is that she paints her he paints her in such a way wow you can tell that, that like half shot really messed me <laughs> it up it did it's 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 nuts uh so the Leah's is a very complicated character in a very little amount of time we get a lot of we we get a lot of complexity from even the way that she tells the story that ragnar recalls at the beginning of the section we did have a decent amount of uh sort of pre-knowledge of her from from the rest of the book though the rest of the series and a little bit from golden sun yeah so there we we came into it kind of knowing a, a little bit about her not a ton but enough to know that she was powerful and regarded like revered. Yeah, mythologic is too like mythological is too strong yeah. a phrase to attach to her, but I think revered or exalted is correct. Yeah. She's she's got a status that exceeds the boundary of her office, right? Mm-hmm. She's clearly known outside of the system, she's clearly respected, she's ultimately in charge or at the very least the other obsidian tribes are at the whim of her are at her whim so she's in an interesting place and i think that she's a complex character gets built up over a very short period of time especially given the comparison of her retelling of the same story that ragnar tells right at the beginning of the section she tells it as though he heroically is hanging on to her because he's the strongest in reality, he's terrified and is tying his hands together to ensure that he doesn't fall off because she wanted to kill him, is his perspective. Right. And frankly, I'm apt to believe Ragnar. But I don't necessarily <laughs> I don't necessarily think that she's just lying. Um, because in Ragnar's telling of that story, he he says that she didn't know that he tied his his hands together. Like it might just be that her perspective mm-hmm. is what she was saying. She might not realize that she's telling the story in a different light from what was the the reality. This may be my very jaded divorced parents uprising, <laughs> but or upright raising, raising, rising, uprising, whatever, whichever way you want to paint it. Upbringing. I upbringing. Yes, thank you. I feel as though this is a tw- a clever twisting of words to say, ah, yes. Someone survived the thing that I didn't expect them to survive and they did well. So I'm going to manipulate that to my own advantage. It feels as though 
based on Ragnar's story, it seemed as though he, she was taking him up to get rid of him, to have him let go. And he only won because he technically outwitted her. And she then spun that into, he's the strongest boy who ever lived. Blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And it's just basically I can see that. reverse engineering the story. I can totally see that. But that's just my jaded mm-hmm. perspective on things. And I, I think that yeah. honestly makes more sense. But I, I'm curious because we, I mean, we don't know either way. Mm-hmm. But I, I, right. I'm, right. I'm more never, inclined to here. believe you. But I can, I could convince myself. Or I could, I can, I could, I can see I could, it the other I could way be too. convinced that she was genuinely unaware of the circumstances yeah. and thought that he was just that strong. Yeah. So, I mean, she's, Aaliyah has just proven herself to be a liar in a short frame of True. time, which is a part of it. But yes, I, I definitely can agree with you that there is maybe a component of her that believes the opposite. Mm-hmm. I think that's compared to Nero, like we were talking earlier, Nero might lie to himself to make him feel okay. Aaliyah would lie to herself and convince herself that it's true. Yeah, that's true. And that's just a difference in difference in character. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. I, well, thank you. I I appreciate that. PJ needed that little ego boost on a Monday. Woo. (laughs) <laughs> I, I love the disparity in the difference in these chapters from the other. The world does feel so much colder and darker and very medieval, mm-hmm. like has been suggested previously. But it, we, we've obviously we've talked about obsidian culture now for two and a half books. And finally, being here is was it as jarring as you expected? It's exactly as jarring as I expected. I think I think it was well described ahead of time i wasn't surprised by the conditions that they lived in okay that's only because of the things that ragnar had said and the the warnings that he had given and the stories that he had told of his homeland so i i I wasn't i wasn't surprised by it but at the same time it wasn't like not as bad as i was expecting like it's it was exactly as bad as, as i was expecting checks out checks out it's worth noting, final final note on this chapter. Uh, I love the quote right at the end where Darrow's reflecting and says, Slag and Gamma are not the only favored slaves of the world. Yeah. Just kind of reflecting on the way that some obsidians, including the shamans and other folks, are let in on the secret. Right. Meanwhile, the rest toil and suffering. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Chapter 32, No Man's Land. I love the quote right off the bat, which I don't perfectly agree with, but I, I find it interesting at the very least to to talk about. Farmers make culture, nomads make war on 250. Yeah. I think this is really interesting. I, it's not perfect. I think it's meant to be I think a generalization. That it definitely is. I think that this works a majority of the time, but I think that nomads historically also have culture. They just... I, I, hmm. I think... I think the I think the point they're trying to make is as soon as culture starts to permeate the nomad, the nomadic way of life, they start to settle down. And yeah, right. Yes. And stop being or at the very least. Yeah. Inhabit similar patterns. Right. So that's the difference between, I think, 
some nomads and others is when you are rotating very specifically. Yes, yeah, I mean, places. nomadic is different than migratory. Yes, right. And yeah. I, I think I, I culture was, is very, very rooted in in most cases in occupied land and in in terrain that they live in and in places that they they call home. Mm-hmm. So as soon as you make make cultural ties to specific places it's it can be argued that you stop being a nomad yeah culture is also equivocated to development here right yeah so that's not to say that the obsidians don't have culture they do have culture but they make war with each other as as opposed to continuing to develop they prevent themselves from they they occupy as mentioned earlier, the same space that Quicksilver mentioned, the reason that he joined to fight against the society at large, because everything is stalled in place. And Obsidians have intentionally been stalled in place so that they can be great warriors for the mm-hmm. Golds. Yeah. It's the same sort of circular revelation. Yeah, it, it feels like with, with the existence of Asgard, it feels like an extended version of the Institute. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's actually interesting. It's like a lifelong perpetual Institute that they're living in. And maybe, maybe I don't know how long, I don't know if it's been mentioned how long the Institute's been implemented within gold society, but I wonder if that is, I wonder if one was modeled after the other. Yeah. If one led to the other, that's, that's interesting for sure. I don't know if that question's answered, but definitely something to mm. consider. Interesting. So I, I love the description too here. It's a black mountain ripped from the ground by the gods and hung halfway between the abyss and the ice world below, seat of the Aesir, where Olympus was a bright celebration of the senses. This is a brooding threat to a conquered race. I love that. I, I love the dichotomy in the imagery there. This kind of black floating terrifying mountain in the distance mm-hmm. it's so interesting versus like the floating clouds of olympus i don't know Where, yeah exactly it's uh hmm. you have to make it proportionally terrifying to the people that they're being ruled like <laughs> the, the people that yeah. they're ruling and they don't really have to hide what's going on at a higher level on olympus like obviously that, that there's they don't know exactly what's going on as students, but like they know who's there and what's going on for the most part. Whereas they need to make this mountaintop impervious and unapproachable for the obsidians. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The only way to, for most obsidians to get up there is the way of the stained, which is very difficult. The Valkyries, of course, are riding on their griffins and they like literally slap Darrow and crew on the side of them, which I found hilarious <laughs> for some reason on this read through. I was like, oh, you're just tied like a saddlebag on the side of a griffin. <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> I mean, but what else are you going to do? Yeah, I mean, maybe not tied like a saddlebag. You could be riding in the back, the, like yeah, hugging mm, up to Sefi. We know there's space. No. Get on, All right, get on the side. Fine. Red boy. Red boy. (laughs) Then after they land and they arrive, Darrow makes a last chance of persuading persuading Sefi before they're given over uh, via Aliyah's orders by Sefi to the gods of 
fucking Asgard. What's it called? Brain. Asgard. It, before they're given away to it, the Asgardians, he he makes this final plea and is able to kind of break through to her. Yeah. Walking through his plan to prove that the golds, gods, are just men. Yeah. Um, that's a risk. <laughs> but it's all he got it's all he's got at that point. Like mm-hmm. it's the only thing he can really do. If he do, if that doesn't succeed, it's, he's fucked because they've they intentionally gave up their weapons, kind of in this in this gambit, which I'm using it properly, Crossland, and I'm using <laughs> yeah. it intentionally uh, you, instead of just sprinkling the word gambit around. Hey, I never use the word inappropriately. No, I just use it too you used frequently it all the fucking time, though. <laughs> but interesting that you threw it in there. I'm uh, I'm I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you Thank for you. using the word gambit. In a podcast episode, we got to start having secret words that we try to tie into the episode. Anyway, please don't make it be Gambit. <laughs> It'll be lizard mm. or something like that. Or lemon wedges. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but it it is it is very interesting where he finally is able to make this distinction. And without any kind of verbal acknowledgement, Sefi agrees and the... Some of the Valkyries strip off their clothes and give them to Darrow and Mustang and allow for them and Holiday and allow for them to continue up the yeah, hill. I was kind of surprised that uh, I was surprised that there wasn't more pushback by the other Valkyries like there was with um, what's her pebble. Like, I, I would think there'd be w- yeah. at least one that would maybe hesitate a little bit more who would probably get shot down immediately <laughs> by Sefi or the others. But Still, I, I was thinking there'd be some I tension think, there. I think that's I I agree with you. I think that that's definitely missing. I think that that has to do with the like absolute authority of Steffi. And I feel like that builds it up. Yeah, a it does. It here. absolutely is that does. without words, without speaking for 25 years, she commands the elite force of the obsidians without saying anything. Christ, like, yeah. wow, clearly, clearly there's something going on there. So. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. It does feel weird, but I think that that speaks more to a cultural difference than anything yeah. else. Yeah, that's fair. Totally fair. We can't we can't end this chapter without mentioning the conversation with the board Violet <laughs> that they at, before they're granted entry the into Asgard. Ancient old it's, old old man with like milky eyes from age. Like I yeah, don't know, man. It, I laughed. I laughed uh, honestly, at the description of him. That's funny. I didn't laugh this time so much as I thought about it. And I was like, huh. So he's stayed here for a very long time. He also might have been carved to have milky eyes like a fate might have, you know, or like any sort of other omniscient perspective in another culture might have. You know, kind of the milky yeah, eyes being a, a signet of like sight beyond just my eyes because I'm blind. I, I could kind see of that. a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm not. I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm just saying it was. I was in my head this time mm-hmm. for some reason. I was like, huh. I, I Most found it interesting. To be honest, this violet though. Mm-hmm. I guess I don't know who else it would be. Like what other color it would be? But aren't they all? Aren't the violets more of the artistic, um, the artistic types within the society for the most part? Yes, which includes actors in my head. Okay, so I think that this is an actor's portrayal. Okay. I can see that. Yeah. Not not saying that it's perfect. Or, but I, or I like a lore maker comes in of some sort. Yeah. But I, I think that 
What's interesting about violets is they get overgeneralizes the creative types, and well, most it's what of the series t- focuses it's on what the carvers. Ca- it's what they're called. No, I agreed. What I'm saying is that most of the series focuses on right. the carvers, and they don't talk about anything else. So they don't. We get like violet poems in this book, which is mm-hmm. interesting, but we don't really talk or like meet or interact with another violet in a serious context that isn't a it, carver outside of this guy. It, yeah, it, it, it was it a bad actor. reminds me of the golds and uh, our exposure to them. Like we I would think the carvers are probably kind of the pinnacle of violet society. Uh, the ones mm-hmm. heralded as the most important and the most uh, prestigious um, because of the significance of the work that they put forward. And much in the same way, we are almost almost exclusively exposed to peerless scarred gold society. It's a great point. It's a great point. I think that that's very similar, just like we aren't exposed to many high reds, you know, and, and there are a number of other colors that we kind of don't get perfect images on, but we get adjacent there. I mean, there's so many colors to cover and, you know, so little time and all from Darrow's perspective. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a trapping gaze. So we, we haven't spent a whole lot of time on this chapter, but to be honest, this chapter is very straightforward. It is, it, it is very clean cut. It's to the point. I think we're going to move on to the next chapter, chapter 33, Gods and Men. The whole ruse, as we had talked about before, is a very clever deception on the part of Mustang, Darrow, and Sefi, having them dress up like obsidians to get close. They make it close to the golds, and we're introduced to two of the eight golds that are at the station. I mean, gods. I mean, golds. Uh, Loki and Freya are the first two. They're kind of like shamed, peerless, scarred, basically exiled to ensure that obsidians don't step out of line. What do you think? Um, I thought it was interesting. It kind of mentions that this used to be kind of a prestigious outpost to be stationed at, and it's slowly become more of a punishment to be stationed here. Right? It mentions that, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It totally does. It it mentions it, and I imagine the initial years were something like constantly having to keep the obsidians in line and control the culture, versus now it's kind of an idle we sit here, we occasionally whip out random lightning bolts for And fun we live in the fucking and cold. And don't do much else. Like yeah, me. Right. right. Like any <laughs> good Minnesotan. Meanwhile, it's been 80 here for the last four days. Yeah, go fuck yourself. Four days. Four I days. couldn't drive up my driveway yesterday. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. It's Speaking so of, after, uh, after we record this, I need to go move my car where I get a $30 ticket. Well, yeah. don't do that that's mm-hmm. unfortunate okay yeah i mean they they go through this whole ruse they're introduced to loki and freya and after a brief conversation mustang pulls off her mask the whole room opens up and they notice and understand each other they understand the mustangs and augustus and augustin augustin probably augustin and that darrow is it's an darrow augustus shortly thereafter it might i mean be. how would you refer to somebody of your family I mean, it's a yeah. Shaw, but Augustus is a plural that also has the August Augustus Augustin. is the last name. Yeah, but there's some weird plural laws, man. Mm, I'm not going to argue with that or with you on that because you know more than I do on that stuff. So, okay, <laughs> where where I'll clarify is that Augustine would be used predominantly in conjuncture with the Augustan age or the Augustan yeah. period or the Augustan based rule. around Augustus 
yeah or subjects so or something in like my that. head yeah i mean what's weird is that obviously it's borrowing from history so the origin is augustine is relating to augustus it's a combination of latin and english it's but she's not expl- she's not relating oh, to augustus she is augustus it's it's a weird use yeah. case yeah, but even the laws that Augustus passed down are referred to as Augustinian or Augustine laws. I mean, Augustus still exists as so, a last name. Yeah, 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 yeah. PJ, <laughs> what I'm saying is it's complicated. I, we're gonna, okay. we're gonna. I don't, I don't think it's as gonna, complicated as you're making it out to be. We're gonna say that it's Augustus. <laughs> uh, and that okay, wrong. perfect. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Where were you going with that one? So Mustang pulls off her mask (laughs) and the whole room opens up. She's addressed as one of the Augustuses or the other phrase. I think she's just she's just referred (laughs) to as Augustus, isn't she? Yeah. Yes. Yes. PJ. That was was, okay. I was kidding. I was just making sure I wasn't missing something. No, you're you're good. You're good. You're just missing my jokes. I'm ignoring your jokes. (sighs) Fine. (laughs) (laughs) but all of a sudden everyone clicks into place and they understand very quickly. Darrow grabs his razor, absolutely fucking maims Freya, like cuts off her arm, just lops it off and then takes off her jaw. Like in the matter of seconds on the page, a a line or two. Yeah. Yeah. Just, and then throws his razor razor over into Loki but doesn't quite pierce the shield, but then Mustang just skewers him she against the kicks wall. the back like of just plugging in she and out. Kicks the back of the uh, razor through his chest, doesn't she? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like just fucking gnarly. Mm. Meanwhile, Sefi is just sitting there astounded. And man, what a what a wonderful small violent yeah. scene. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But I, I mean, it's I, I think we uh, we skipped over it a little bit and maybe it was the previous chapter. But when they present the uh, the razor before it's mm-hmm. used to hack off the arm and head of uh, Freya, how they they take very, very special care to not touch it at all. Right. So it's not hinted. No, no, no. I think I think in, it, probably because there's still. There's still a little bit of that. They they haven't they haven't they haven't been Darrow hasn't proven that they're not gods yet. That they Oh, you're right. You're right. Freya or sorry, Steffi is holding it at that point in yeah. the seal skin. In the beginning of the last chapter, yes. Or at the end of the last chapter, yes. At the beginning at the beginning of this chapter, presenting it to the Aesir, yes. She's still ultimately holding it, hands it off. Darrow reaches and grabs it. So yeah, she's absolutely trying to absolve herself of touching it because that would be a violation of her culture, the law that she's mm-hmm. instilled with. Not even just the law, the, the, the governing of the gods, like, like, yeah, yeah. Exalted decree. <laughs> right. Some sort of extra layer mm-hmm. of bullshittiness. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's very carefully presented and then the lopping maiming happens, everything like that. They they do a very careful job of approaching the entire situation. That's why they can even get here in the first place is because ultimately it's Sefi. They're kind of able to talk their way through. When Mustang reveals herself, she jumps into Orient lingo, recognizing that they were barely hiding accents in the first place. You know, and it's not like the Obsidians would notice 
poor Nagal. They might think that it's good or superior Nagal, even though it's not because it's the gods. So they might take their word on faith. They would take their word on faith. Literally faith. Yeah. Right. So we, we get back to Loki and it turns out that he is Proctor Mercury (laughs) from the first book. We get a lot of callbacks to the first book in this section. The guy was a butt of the joke in book one, you know, where he like, he was like dancing up to Darrow's. He was going to fight him. He was was like stuns him with a pulse. A little more than tipsy on wine. He was in his bathrobe. I think like just kind of prancing around. He's just having a good time. But he was also like, I'm going to stop. you." And then he gets a pulse fist to the chest. Yeah. Yeah. And and here, meanwhile, he gets very quickly maimed. Um, and Darrow's line following that up is just great, right? You have to be the least lucky gold I've ever met. Two mountains lost to a red. <laughs> like, oof. Dude. You played God twice and lost somehow twice. Both times, Mercury and Loki. You moron. Yep. Yep. <laughs> oh, oh, poor Mercury. But Mercury is absolutely terrified of what they're doing here. Not so much because he's dying. You know, he's he's actually what's interesting is I think he's less terrified of dying. He's more terrified of what Darrow and Mustang are ultimately doing here with releasing Pandora's box, as he says. And I don't think he's necessarily wrong. Um, I think you you have that as one of my predictions later. But I, I don't think I don't think he's necessarily wrong in that. I think maybe a little bit more alarmist, but I think the sentiment of opening Pandora's box is true. Yeah, potentially very real. And and there's a very different energy amidst the obsidians versus every other caller when it comes to joining the rising. But the line real quickly before we get there, and I think we'll talk more about that at the end after kind of the the ending of Aaliyah. <laughs> Is uh, if this is from Mustang, if they are monsters, we should ask ourselves who made them that way. Yeah. Phenomenal. Oh, perfect. Covers covers a lot of a lot of ground and kind of places the blame of the obsidians on the golds in the society at large, because the obsidians have risen up once they were strong and they did it before and they created it kind of feels like they created worse monsters as opposed to just genetically engineered soldiers worse monsters but they were to a certain extent under control like they they mm-hmm. they became more dangerous but only more dangerous if if the if the illusion was was dropped mm-hmm. which they were what's what's the uh not not naive they were uh overconfident what's the term for overconfident i guess they're they're hubris. Yeah, hubris. Their hubris yeah. was. I, I felt like naive is right. Uh, hubris yeah. is better though. They were convinced that they could main, like they could contain them and they could they could control it. Yeah, right. Not not on a long enough timeline. They were eventually going to find out, figure out, mm-hmm. just like the Reds did ultimately. Where this rising, but maybe from. maybe that maybe that's the reason why they let in the uh, the queen on the secret. They let in Alia. Very well could be. Very well could be. So as to maintain that lineage of information as it's handed mm-hmm. down. That would yeah. make sense. To have someone on the inside yeah. maintaining the secret for them, giving her power over everyone else, but also keeping them in charge. Yeah. Definitely. Hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, so to wrap up chapter 33, I love how Darrow teaches Sefi how to use the razor in the end. 
uh, when they capture and go hunt the rest of the golds inside of Asgard, the sort of description of her using and like designing the shape of the razor on the hilt, I think is actually really important. And I feel like should have probably to your point and sort of a lot of the different mechanics of the universe it was described but it wasn't described in this way and in this detail i really appreciated before this it does when you had me describe it before and i just maybe i can't remember if that was on our podcast or if it was on high key obsessed which we guested on where where we're talking about the the razors and how they work i described it as sort of a series of sections that are sort of magnetically attached and uh, controlled. I think this kind of the, within this section, at least there are, there are different points Mm -hmm. where Darrow is able to make it shorter and stubbier and they sort of draw out the shape that they want it to be made from. It makes it a lot more fluid in my mind as something that maintains its, its, its mass, but can be completely amorphous in shape and can can be wider and shorter or longer and skinnier and that doesn't really lend itself to this to the description that I made of it previously. Yeah. It's I mean it's like feather thin, right? So it's just an elongated what what is neo pauline strand, right? And then it's it's kind of drawn into the shape. And I agree with kind of the idea that it's it's easiest to imagine it as magnetic segments that adjust mm-hmm. as you draw whatever shape it is into it. But I, I, I th- with, with the way that they interact with it here in this chunk of book, it, it makes me think of it more like like um almost like mercury, like a semi-fluid metal that can be controlled and squished and adjusted in in height and width. Yes. Yeah. Justin squished Mm -hmm. the the weapon is so fascinating i think it's actually the only believable well it's the second most believable take on a science fiction sword behind in my head only the lightsaber um i will i will agree with you with one addition and that is the energy sword from halo yeah yeah, that's never trying to push. But any that crazy that also has a lot of parallels to a lightsaber. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's not like it's ever used to deflect lasers at any point. No, that's true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I'd agree in all three counts. I think that they probably rank in the top three science fiction weapons of all time. Well, not science, science fiction, fiction weapons of all time, but science fiction yeah. swords. Yeah. Yep. So with that, we'll move into chapter thirty-four: God Killers. It's it's important to note that right off the bat, we get a lot of description of the success that was had on Phobos with the plan. And you know what? It's so infrequent where the rising succeeds in something that's worth kind of taking a moment to applaud yeah. here because they fuck up a lot. <laughs> they really do. <laughs> you know, when you think about it, it's like, how are you even a rebellion at this point? Like you, Numbers, man. You, you suffer a lot Numbers, of losses. And, and that's the reality of the success on Phobos is literally meat into the grinder mm-hmm. oof but interesting nonetheless great flash of success there so the next bit i think is a larger conversation to be had about darrow and darrow's changing philosophy over the course of this book in the series at large this is now not how i intended 
to bring the obsidians into my fold. I wanted to use wards to come humbly in seal skin, no armor, putting myself at the mercy of obsidians to show Leah that I valued her people's worth, valued their judgment, and was willing to put myself in peril for them. I wanted to do as I preached, but even Ragnar knew that was a fool's errand. For obsidian to hear, I must speak in the only language they understand, might. Mm -hmm. I think that this is very interesting because there's a component here where Darrow wasn't was able to convince Ragnar without might. Right. There there was a component of it where he dove into the ship head headstrong, headlong, just him and Severo. And that was a part of the component, but also a part of that was the speech and the way that he was able to sway everyone. And so it indicates kind of a paradigm shift for me with Darrow that indicates that he's willing to do whatever it takes to make it happen. It being the rising to fuel the rising in this. Revolution. I think um, I think there's something that's a little bit different that Darrow kind of overlooks with how he was able to convince Ragnar because Ragnar had already pledged his stains to the, to, to Darrow and was already kind of subservient to him. That's, that's true. But I'm, I'm talking even pre the stains, right? The reason that he gives Darrow the stains is, is not just because of the show of might, but it is also because of the, the speech. Um, that's that's what I was getting at. Like his base inclination to winning Ragnar over was just not strictly. A I show don't of necessarily know th- know if that's even true. at that point. D- Ragnar came to present his stains to him after he took the ship, and there's 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 a posit by Darrow that he did it because he knew that he was going to be given to the Julii, and this was an opportunity to kind of get out of that contract um Mm -hmm. i i don't think it had anything to do with his speech okay i i I what i'm positing i think ragnar would have still come forward without the speech because um darrow wouldn't have taken the vessel without the speech though that's a good point that's true so that's that's more my component is and maybe this is maybe this is the flexibility of the statement and also, I, w- I want to lead into this. I said purely might, right? So it's just saying that it was only might. What, what I find interesting here is that Darrow goes off in the speech. People rebel. That's interesting. People kind of turn turn coat for him. And that's a show of indirect power, not necessarily might. Then again, Nagal might find all fall under the same word or same understanding. So it's it's tough to say no, it, exactly it doesn't why. Because, uh... Ragnar explicitly says that words, words and might are different. Right? Got it. He, he's saying Got that it. words won't work with his. No, mother. he he. Correct. What I was saying is that might and power. Oh, might and power. Yeah. The same. Yeah. Yes, not might and words, but I, all told, the the sort of expression. I think that Ragnar is obviously a step above, a step ahead, a step forward, and I think he even was at that point. And that's really what I'm trying to get to here is that ultimately Darrow has accepted the fact that he can create an army. In the first two books, he was very focused on creating an army through inspiration by example. And now he is at a point where he's willing to create an army by any means necessary yeah. to get what he needs to fulfill his goals. I, I Except think, for slavery. I think like that's also won't. a point to uh, to make there. In the first book, at least, 
he is making an army under the assumption that he's still going to betray all of them. So he is not necessarily deceiving everyone that he's trying to convince to be on his side, but he is playing into their goals and mm-hmm. aligning aligning their goals in a way that make it feel like they're they're all out for the same thing when in reality at least in the first book it's something way different and way bigger than that for Darrow but not for everyone else necessarily and mm-hmm. that that shifts over time as they as he tells them about the uh the deception and the the cheating that's being done at the institute but it's i think a little bit of a different tactic than he employs now where this is this is not for their own personal gain but for the gain of society as a whole at the sacrifice of themselves yeah and the, the, those are two di- mm. very different mindsets to put yourself in i i agree on the mindset front and i agree with what you're what you're saying i just think that there's an element here where darrow has shifted from a sort of pragmatic lens of being an inspiration to people as opposed to a utilitarian perspective of i'm gonna pull this off no matter what i have to do with the exception of serious war crimes (laughs) like that's seemingly the one thing that's out of reach here well (laughs) yeah like like i said right now it seems like that's that's the perspective right it is i i find that's that interesting this also ties into and this comes a little bit later but speaks to mustang and darrow's relationship we're the same kind of cruel i told myself i would be better than this i failed that promise but noble vanity can shine another day this is war and another victory is the only nobility that's what she wants an ally as much as she wants a builder someone wise enough to adapt i think the first part of that phrase before we switch into the back half about mustang speaks to exactly what I was saying before, wherein he is just seeking victory. It's all about the win at this point. It's completely shifted. Mm-hmm. And then the the bit about Mustang and the relationship is that they see each other in different lights, wherein Darrow is the adaptable winner and Mustang is sort of the virtuous soul. Right. Yeah. And I mean, we, we talk a lot about the parallels between Mustang and EO, but I think that's pretty evident here too. The, the goal of a better world in general trumps everything regardless of what your preconceptions mm-hmm. are regardless of how, how you were planning on going going through with all of this yeah that can all shift as long as the the end goal is a better life for everybody yeah i man there's a lot to talk about here i'm very excited for us to continue reading and with that we'll move on <laughs> from that point What's also interesting to what we were saying before is that extracting it and applying it to our mother-daughter relationship that we're confronted with here, Aaliyah is a talker, but Sefi moved with might. So Aaliyah is more in the mindset of controlling people a la Mustang and Dara's perspective, but Sefi was able to gain control of her sect of society, this, this sort of oscillated or isolated culture, with an action of might killing and beheading her own mother in a single stroke and man it's fascinating those differences two words in terms of the risings yeah two words right she knew her first words in 25 years it's it it is nuts i i think sefi is a great character introduced inside of these pages but she's so different than to be honest like most other characters in fiction she 
stands more stoic than most, has influence with her body language almost entirely, and only speaks when absolutely necessary. Yeah, but also I think the fact that she spoke not only being necessary, but also being a a turning point in, in her realizing that this oath that she made means nothing anymore. Mm-hmm. Why why maintain this oath of silence when when there's no basis for it? Yeah, no basis whatsoever. It's and and the the oath of silence is so interesting because it's to some degree it's culturally imposed, self imposed. Either way, she is an authority when she decides to open her mouth because she stayed quiet for so long. It, I mean. The reality is, is, is if you say fewer things, you end up becoming more of an authority, provided everything you say is insightful or you have a position of power. She has a position of power. She elevates herself. She's the matriarch inside of the society now because she took action. She took might into her own hands, claimed it, and now she's effectively leading her own obsidian she uprising. She, obsidian the rising. one thing that might be a problem... Uh, I don't know. I don't know. It'd be, it'd be interesting to see how this plays out. She took, she used this might to, to overtake her mother and to, to kill Alia, thereby taking the throne essentially, but with a razor and how will that play out with the rest of the obsidians? That's a good question. I mean, everyone seems to rally. Everyone here does right in the immediate moment. Yeah. But I, I feel like the idea is that it's this image of the oppressor and she's wielding the metaphor, the weapon of the but oppressor. But they, they, they have to be convinced that they were being oppressed. Right, by the gods, which she, she effectively decapitates eight of them. Yeah. Kills them so all. There, inside there has room, to be some right? sort of parade then. Like there, there has to be, there yeah, has to I, be I'm sure if, some way to prove this to the masses. Before they can really go forward with yes. recruitment and mobilizing. I would say it'd be pretty easy to take the head and the helmet of each of the gods flying each different direction and someone can yeah. take care of that. But yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I think that that is necessary to communicate the dominance over Asgard, of course, or bring people to Asgard, right? That that would be another mm-hmm. option. Um, rally the leaders of each of the tribes there to exemplify it could work something in those realms Mm -hmm. right so man she goes on the killing rampage she kills all of the golds the final one says something that's worth note it's it's not worth uh, a full well it's it is worth a full-blown conversation but it's not worth it inside of the context here but the poem that is quoted by the final gold before she's executed is the song of the furies by achilles Achilles, 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 something like that. Achilles was the first Greek dramatist or the known as the father of Greek drama. Kind of important in that context where he was influential in the way that dramas and tragedies were written. But other than that, I mean, it's it's mostly a neat tidbit that I think is sprinkled in here as the does this count as a sci fi reference? Were there any no, in this section? But you can take a drink. <laughs> no, none that you know of. Also, none Correct. that I know of. So, 
Yeah, yeah. I, I, we're both clean on that. I would not call this sci-fi <laughs> reference. This is just purely historical, of course. Um, but for those who don't know, it's it's important to note. Uh, definitely did not nail the it, pronunciation. Just for, for if anybody wants to look it up, A E S C H Y L U S. Yeah, but it's the uh, the song of the Furies. It's a five stanza poem, which is written in kind of. Uh, song format each of the different stanzas rhyme immediately with each other except for uh intermittent that hits in the middle but yeah it's uh it's pretty fantastic he's a great dramatist wrote a lot of poems wrote a lot of plays so very important in the greek theater of things not crazy important in the overall story of the red rising fair so it is interesting though that it's the song of the furies we obviously know the furies asha moira and blank are underneath the song i think that that Fury's name is actually blank. Yeah. <laughs> I I know that Fury's Are they all name, sisters? But <laughs> um I, it's not a spoiler to say that okay. all I think that I think that was mentioned. I'm pretty was, sure that was it mentioned. It was mentioned previously. Yeah. They're all the Ash Lord's daughters. Mm-hmm. And for some reason I think the so, third one is named at one point, but I can't remember it. And I might just be making that up. Is not it's not. I, I've I've doubled and triple okay. checked. Um, that one is not buried in the text. I thought it might have been, but it's not. So the final lines of our entire crazy long episode this week. Uh, the gods are dead. The old oaths have been broken until all who will hear the Valkyrie ride to war. As the world swirls around us and the XC of war fills the air, Mustang and I look at one another with darkened eyes and wonder just what we have unleashed. A, mm-hmm. well written. B, yep. fuck. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> All right. With that, PJ's predictions, we'll step right into that. What has Darrow wittingly unleashed? So I think he... I think he unleashed another army against the golds, but I don't necessarily think that they gained. I I don't think that they'll be part of the same army. I think they'll have similar enemies and I don't think that they'll be hostile towards one another, but I don't, I don't necessarily think that going forward, the obsidians and the Valkyries in general will be explicit allies to the sons of Ares. Mm-hmm. I, I think I think they will work in parallel. Okay. Okay. That makes sense to me. How will our heroes, the group, the rising, eventually deal with Aja Al Grimace? Um, so this this is something that I'm trying to grapple with myself a little bit. I'm curious what would happen if the sovereign is dead. And the Sovereign is no longer lording over the Furies, so to speak. I wonder I wonder if Aja's sort of moral compass is based on following the orders of the Sovereign. And if that happens, I wonder if she could find herself following more of the true ideologies of Lorne. Hmm. Interesting. Um, but if you want to get rid of Aja, I don't think you can fight her in hand-to-hand combat. I don't think that's going to work at all. So just fucking nuke her. <laughs> that valid. Like, wait Acceptable. until she gets on a ship and goes somewhere and uh, just 
drop drop a nuke on the on the ship you know i'm not i'm not gonna lie there there are a decent number of solutions here that could be solved with nukes if it weren't so inhumane for everyone else around you know we're just trying to get one person that's 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 why i'm saying the yeah, ship. right right i'm just saying adrius i think that would still that would still be something that would be tough for darrow to uh convince himself is worth mm-hmm. it though i i would totally agree knowing how many people are employed on ships yep exactly like they could nuke Aegea and probably get adrius but they would get everyone else in Aegea, which is not what they're aiming for yeah right but then they they'd have a nice fresh crater to live in true true so what's to be done with our boy cassius with the arrow through his neck <laughs> for all i care give him to the give him to the pack of howlers as like a tasty meat treat all right but um i don't i think i think cassius will survive to a meeting with severo and i don't think he'll survive much later than that okay makes sense to me all right any other thoughts predictions anything else you want to stay on this section no i don't think so i think we've i think we've covered a shit ton of material today (laughs) what's what's nuts is that we this is like the lowest number of pages we've covered in a long time but there's so much here yeah it's dense yeah so with that next week we'll be reading chapters 35 through 42 the first chunk of part three glory it's gonna be very exciting so that is where we will leave you for this week. Um, please continue to refer us to your friends and family that you think would enjoy our show or just would enjoy the book. If you are so inclined, leave a review on your podcatcher of choice if they support it. Our website is wordsandwhiskey.show. Our social media pages are uh, Twitter and Instagram at wordswhiskeypod. On those social media sites, we're always happy to interact with listeners and uh, hear any questions, complaints, comments, concerns, criticisms, suggestions, whatever. Um, we have a fun time with it, and uh, we're, we're always grateful to hear from people that listen to our show. And we appreciate every single person that listens. So with that, I am going to uh, leave you there. Crossland. Anything to add. See you next week. I'm Mr. Lupus. 